Welcome to The Mess, 150 years of Cape Breton Highlander tradition. I am your host, Major Jason Doyle. The Second World War was a defining event in Canadian history, transforming a quiet country on the fringes of global affairs into a critical player in the 20th century's most important struggle. Between 1939 and 1945, more than one million Canadian men and women served full-time in the armed services. More than 43,000 were killed, but again, when the call was made, the Cape Breton Highlanders answered. More people volunteered for service out of New Waterford than any other comparable town in the British Commonwealth. People don't realize that. Think about that for a moment. Today, we will hear the stories of the Highlanders during the Second World War. We were also fortunate enough to speak with someone who was there. I am 97, I'll be 98, and two months' time. This is Joe Burke from Iona. As a young private who hit the beaches of Normandy soon after the D-Day landings, Joe is one of the few remaining Highlanders who fought in and personally remembered the Second World War. We were the guinea pigs of after Dieppe. Second Division went into Dieppe. From what they learned there, they applied it at the beach of Normandy. But the Second Division and the Fourth Division were north of Dover to keep the enemy thinking that's where the major offense was going to start. Three weeks later, we were on our way. I was going to Sydney Academy. I was in the scouts then. We had a morning off to study for exams. I was living just a street down from Victoria Park at my uncle's place. And at any time I had time off, I used to go up to Victoria Park watching the soldiers. So in the morning, I went up there, and who'd I meet but an old school friend from up at Christmas Island. And he said he was joining up. He went in, and I heard him say, when asked his age, 18, and asked him a lot of questions. Told him to follow that. And of course, I was outside, and there's five steps going up to the back of the administration building at that time. I would call them five steps to hell. <laughs> But anyway, I was standing on the ground, stuck my head around the corner of the door, and the voice said, you're next, get in here. So away I went. How old are you? 18. He said, got your birth certificate? No. Bring it in tomorrow. Follow that group there. So away I went. After he asked me a lot of questions, of course, which I didn't know what he was asking. Went into the medic, and the medical sergeant said, strip. So the bunch of us started to, and he came over to me. He said, would you do me a favor? I said, certainly if I can. Would you go over to the liquor store, which was three doors away, and get me a gallon of wine? Here's the 75 cents. Well, that's what I went. Went over there, I came back with a gallon of wine. He said, oh, you look strong enough. Signed the paper and away I went. From uh, the 19th of June, 1940, until we went overseas. And when we went to get our bedding, they said, here's your flashes. We're Cape Breton Highlanders. No, not anymore. You now belong to the North Shore New Brunswick Regiment. <laughs> Seven of us were shifted over. Did they ever tell you why you were shifted? They don't tell you anything like that in the Army. <laughs> yeah, totally different group, because I was shifted from the 
the infantry reinforcement unit over to the signals because I was in the signal platoon with the Cape Breton Highlanders. No, I only stayed with them until my motorcycle and a tank got into an argument. Three months later, I was posted to the Toronto Scottish. I went into France and Toronto Scottish. I may be off a bit by my numbers, but we had some 6,000 men that served with the unit during World War II. Now, when I say served with them, may have passed through, may have started with the unit and stayed with them throughout, or may have passed through them on the way to their own unit after being wounded or something like that. We had 6,000 men. We now have five left, five across the country. Very few people realize that the town of New Waterford, believe it or not, holds the British Commonwealth record for volunteers during the First and Second World War. There's more people came out, volunteered for service out of New Waterford than any other comparable town in the British Empire, the British Commonwealth. And people don't realize that. Think about that for a moment. Little town of New Waterford. Not only that, they kept the mines going as well. I'm very proud that on the day I was born, my relatives were at the train station on Dodd Street in Sydney saying goodbye to the CBH troops as they moved away. And one of the people there to bid goodbye and maybe never to see again, said to my father, where's Aggie Morrison? And he said, she's in the hospital just having given birth. And I was born the day the Cape Breton Highlanders left for overseas. The first battle in which the Cape Breton Highlanders were engaged in Italy in January of 1944. Remember now that some of these fellows had been training in Victoria Park, in St. John, New Brunswick, in various places in England, and finally got to Italy. The first battle was near the end of January, 1944. Timings had been set out, artillery fire had been allocated to cover the advancing Cape Breton Highlanders. That plan went astray and everything was delayed by a number of hours. So the battle began and the bullets flew in both directions. And after a while, one of the CBHers turned to his platoon commander and said, sir, this is serious business. And they all realized at that time that they were at war, they had trained for it, and they were actually there. It wasn't until they were fixing up the records before D-Day, I was still with the North Shore, when the agent called me and he said, how come you got a sister two months older than you are? I don't know. But shortly after that, I had the motorcycle accident. I had a long haul on a Harley. I was taking American river boats over to Portsmouth. This was six o'clock in the morning. When I got back to the unit, the captain was there and he said, take that Norton that's down there and gas it up. So I jumped on the Norton, went up and just, I pulled around to the corner 
track vehicles ahead of me. All of a sudden, it stopped and turned. I went to put the brakes on, and guess what? I was on an Orton, and the brakes were on the opposite side. By the time you get thinking, are you going to end up in grounding those cogs there? I tried to go around the end of it. There was a space there. I cleared the first part of it, but the last part, footrest on the Norton must have hit the curb and flipped me back into the tracks of the other. And of course, I took my decap out. And that was it. Don't know anything about what happened until I was in the medical officer's room and he was sticking needles in my decap. An officer came in, he said, sign this. So signed it. It wasn't until, I'd say, four years after I got out of the Army in 69, before I found that piece of paper in my records. Who's responsible for the accident? <laughs> Joe Burke. <laughs> so you carried on through the war. Were you injured anymore in the war or anything like that? Or was that your only time that you were hurt? Oh, no. When I was with the North Shore, one afternoon, I borrowed the DR's motorcycle and went for a little tour around the country. And coming back, I didn't have a helmet on, which was a charge. I didn't have gloves on, which was a charge. I didn't have goggles on, which was a charge, if they had a caught me. Coming down a hill, and this car going to pull into a field. It kept on over the center line, way over to my side. So I swerved to avoid him, and I hit him head on. He said I went over the top of the car, ended in brush. But the only thing I remember is trying to pull the motorcycle out from between his front wheels <laughs> of his car. Ran back, reported in, of course. The transport sergeant went out and picked up the motorcycle. The only thing they couldn't fix by scrounging parts and other units was the front fork. So I, I was placed under close arrest and I had to go down to a house where it was screened in from the veranda and that was my detention. I had to stay there for a week, but every night I had to go next door to the movie so they'd know where I was. So every night I went to a movie. Some detention. Anyway, went up before the colonel. I bet you it took him a half an hour turning my crime sheet. Up and look on one side, then the other side. The other side, then back in. Then look at me, then look down again. Turn it back and forth. I was lucky I didn't have any red mark across. Red mark is if you are up on liquor charge. He said, you like on motorcycles? I said, yes, sir. He said, there's a course starting Monday. This was a Saturday. He said, you'll be on it and 14 days CB. For the motorcycle course was 14 days. The third day I was on it, the instructor pulled us into a pub. That's where they always had their meals. Went in and who was in there but the RSM of the unit. He said, some CB you're doing. <laughs> Trouble with my little name. The fellow upstairs always said to St. Peter, we don't want to take that soldier today. I was with I Cadre, Highland Light Infantry in Galt, and then I went down to Windsor to 6th Battery Artillery, I Cadre, and an opening came for a signal sergeant in the RCRs. So I applied for it, and they said, if you pass your medic, you got it. So I went up to London for my medic, and they said, oh, you have to take a refresher course. So they sent me to the signal corps in Kingston. Got to the signal corps, same thing again. Here's your flashes. What do you mean? You're no longer infantry. You now belong to the signal corps. 
one Sunday afternoon, uh, Sergeant came in the barracks and said, anybody want to go to visit Windsor Castle grounds? He said, got room for five. So five of us went. Two of my buddies, myself and two others. The other two, one was from Regina and one was from Montreal. And my two buddies were from St. John, New Brunswick and myself, of course, from Christmas Island. And we went over there after we toured the grounds, saw all the nice wagons that King Henry VIII and everybody else rode on and in. We were asked to sit at a table in the back garden, sit down there. Pretty soon two nice ladies came out, young girls, asked them where everybody was from. They knew where Regina was and Montreal was. They were hesitant about St. John because they were thinking of St. John's, Newfoundland, but that was straightened out. Then when I said Christmas Island, the youngest one, she started making jokes about Santa Claus and of course, we had to have a few laughs, too. But it was Princess Margaret and Queen Elizabeth. Uh, well, Princess Elizabeth at the time. Yeah, there were 14, 16 at that time. I was 18. We were talking there for about an hour, and then all of a sudden, the back door of the castle opened. This lady came out, carrying a tray of scones and some cups. One behind her had a pot of tea and some cups. Of course, being gentlemen, we started to get up. And the one, the older one, said, sit, boys, sit. Save it for the parade square. It was Queen Elizabeth, the present queen's mother, and her grandmother. They gave us tea, poured the tea. We didn't have to pour the tea. Queen Mary poured the tea. Now we stayed there for about another half hour or so before the sergeant came for us. Well, there was nothing going on. And the girls, Princess Margaret and Princess Elizabeth, they were out riding. And we were just there for the tour. Of course, when they came in, we were told that or asked to sit at the table. That's great. It's very enjoyable. You know? The colonel of the uh, Hamilton Light Infantry, he uh, went into France. That's when I got to know him. When I first started going in there, it was to get his signature on dockets and stuff like that. After a while, he asked me my name and where I was from and what. After a while, it was uh, going there at two o'clock in the morning. Tia's on, Joe. In 63, I was instructing NATO officers in the School of Signals on land communications. I had just finished the class, dismissed them. They were uh, just heading for the door, the, the officers, when the back door opened. In came in the training officer, the colonel of the school. Behind him was a fellow with red tabs on. They came in and called the room to attention. Carry on. So I started to put my papers to one side. The voice in the red tie said, Joe, you got the tea on? Colonel Whitaker, or well, he was a general man of Eastern Ontario area. Took us about half an hour at least before he left. <laughs> Anytime during the war, did you get to meet up with the Cape Breton Highlanders? Yeah, in uh, Aldershot. Uh, I was only five miles out of Aldershot in school of signals there. So Aldershot in England, though, not Aldershot in Kenfield here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you still got to see everybody and everything else. After they went into Italy and then you went into France, did you get to see anybody? Never saw. They were over around the Amsterdam area, over the Cider Sea, and we were over on the, the other side of it. Fourth Division, Polish Division, Third Division. When I first come home, went to the first reunion. It was a Donnybrook. But in those days, that's what you did. 
You drank beer, and the first thing you know, you're into an argument with the fellow next to you, and the fists start flying. Then you start crying. You sat down, and you had another beer with them. That was our life. And then it finally kind of tamed down when everyone started getting a little bit older and smarter, did it? Or No, no. Never got smarter. <laughs> At least I didn't. <laughs> no, but I quit the fighting. <laughs> what do you think the importance of the association was? Like, what was its main job? Main job, I would say, reminiscing. Sure, you get into arguments, you fights and whatnot, and, but you sat down afterwards and best of friends, camaraderie. What does it mean to you to be a Highlander? From the time I started, I looked at Cape Breton Highlander veterans and I always admired them and uh, looked up to them and respected them. I think that was the motivation to join not only the reserves, but I wanted to be in the infantry and be with the Nova Scotia Highlanders at the time and eventually back with the Cape Breton Highlanders. But I also knew some veterans from the Cape Breton Highlanders from the war, Second World War. Like I know when I first joined, my first company sergeant major was Dave Smith, and he had a whole chest full of medals. And here I am, a 15-year-old kid, and looking up at this sergeant major who was in the war. I think my first CO at the time was Lieutenant Colonel Bob Kipping. As you know, Bob was a war veteran with the Cape Breton Highlanders. I believe he was a sergeant during the Second World War, but and he was certainly somebody respected to look up to. And I got to meet quite a few of the other guys, veterans, uh, on Remembrance Day, because Remembrance Day had a special meaning to military folks. So you get a chance to sit down with some of these guys and hear their stories, and just amazing talking to some of these guys. I met many of them over the years and became good friends with some of them. One of the highlights of the visit of Cape Breton Highlanders, veterans and friends to Delcel was a parade one evening at which we presented a plaque and the mayor said nice words and we said nice words. And we had on blazers and medals and glengarries. And my wife and I were walking down the street later. And this woman came to us, she had a child, and she said, I was not alive when the Cape Breton Highlanders freed our town. But my parents told me, and she said, I want my daughter to meet a Cape Breton Highlander. And that was a very poetic, a very sentimental, and a very much appreciated memory. The second story uh, takes place in Belfsell, Holland, that the Cape Breton Highlanders liberated at the end of April and beginning of May, 1945. In 2005, my wife, Elizabeth McMichael and I, with the help of Ian McIntyre and Jerry McNeil, both illustrious Cape Breton Highlanders, we organized a tour to Delfsell in Holland to mark the anniversary of the liberation of that town from the Germans. We had a couple of pipers with us. We had a very big bus and an excellent driver. We had a contact in a local historian in Belzell. And one night we all got in the bus and we drove out on the dike. And when we were heading out to the dike, 
there was a brick building alongside one of the roads. And Paul Weil, a veteran, served at Delfcell, said to us, he said, I remember that building. And we said, how? He said, well, we were clearing the area and a couple of us went in the bank. And what we found was some German soldiers filling knapsacks with money. And I said to him, Paul, what did you do? He said, I did what I was trained to do. And that's the essence of a Cape Breton Highlanders soldier. You train and you execute according to your training. Talking about Ted Slaney, I had the distinct pleasure several years ago, the Department of Veteran Affairs called our association, at which time I was the president, looking for members to go on a pilgrimage to Vimy with a group, a delegation from the Department of Veteran Affairs, and they wanted so many veterans. Anyway, I put it up before the membership. Nobody wanted to go. So Ted was up in years then, and I living in Montreal, so I thought the best of it, not that he might not want to go. So when anybody didn't want to go, I put my name forward. I thought it would be a good trip. Veteran Affairs said, yeah, okay, no problem. Anyway, Ted must have talked to some older fellows, and he gave us an indication that he did want to go. So I called him personally, and yes, he wanted to go. So I said, okay, not a problem, Ted. And I never mentioned that I had already been selected. But I called the DVA, and they said, no problem. Ted can go. And I said, well, Ted was of the age he needed a caregiver. So I said, is there a possibility that Ted needs a caregiver uh, that I could go in that capacity? So they said, by all means. I called Ted. I knew Ted's situation, too. And I said, you've been selected. Everything's approved. you got to do this, 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 and this. He said, good. And I said, do you have a caregiver? He said, no, not at this time. His wife is 94 at the time. You need two more caregivers. But anyway, uh, he said, yeah, that'd be a great idea. So I got back to DVA, and they, they approved that. And I ended up going with Ted to Vimy. And I was his caregiver and roommate and had a button his tie every day we went in and look after him as best I could. Ted remembers that fondly. It was a great time for me as well. He was a sergeant in the Cape Breton Highlanders in 1945 and had been to Delfseal and went on to serve in the Royal Canadian Regiment. And he became the regimental sergeant major. He was highly respected by a Royal Canadian Regiment, as a matter of fact. When we proposed Ted as to be honorary colonel, the headquarters folks uh, higher up in the chain said, you don't want a captain as a colonel. Well, we said, you know, it's not just a captain. He's a war veteran at XRSM and all this stuff. Working through the headquarters, sometimes not the easiest. So a call was made to the colonel of the RCR regiment. And he backed us 1,000%, and there was no problem after that. I felt in my task particularly, and one of the things I take very seriously, is to maintain contact with them. They're not going to be around forever. And so what I do every time I speak with them, I get another bit of anecdotal information. And like I said, I go home and I write it down and I keep it on a thumb drive that I have for information purposes. And I think that's very important. What we do is we keep the memories of the unit not so much the current memories, the past memories of the units. We keep it alive. I think it's given Cape Breton a very justified sense of pride and achievement that 
a military organization wearing Cape Breton Highlanders flash on their uniforms have perpetuated what was begun in Victoria County 150 years ago. And in 1939, when recruiting was started at Victoria Park in Sydney, men came from all over the island, from Ottawa Brook and Inverness and Gabarus and Glace Bay and the industrial heart of Cape Breton. Some of them spoke more Gaelic than they did English. And they came together and they created the legacy of the modern day Cape Breton Highlanders. You have been listening to The Mess, commemorating 150 years of Cape Breton Highlanders tradition. To continue participating in our 150th anniversary celebrations, check out shapingofcanada.ca. To learn how you can become a Highlander and join us at The Mess, visit our page on the Canadian Forces website or join us on Facebook at the Cape Breton Highlanders Association page.